Welcome to an eye-opening episode of the Prevention Leaders Podcast. Today, we have the pleasure of chatting with Stephen Shedletsky, aka Shed, the brilliant mind behind the book, Speak Up Culture. Join us as Shed shares invaluable insights on cultivating a speak up culture within our workplaces and our communities. Get ready to explore the power of transparency, vulnerability, and inclusive leadership in fostering an environment where everyone's voice is not only heard, but valued. With practical strategies and tools at hand, this conversation is bound to inspire you to, to take action and drive positive change within your teams, organizations, and communities. Don't miss out on this opportunity to embrace the strength of hope and human connection in shaping a better, more empowered future. So let's dive in and discover the art of creating a culture where speaking up is not only encouraged, but celebrated. In prevention, we are all leaders. Whether you're leading a nationwide prevention initiative, facilitating statewide prevention community, your coalition coordinator, or a one-person shop, you are a prevention leader. How we show up and how we engage with others to create positive change takes all types of leadership. So sit back and enjoy these conversations with your fellow prevention leaders from across the globe who are sharing their lessons learned, best practices, and strategies for success. All right, podcast listeners, tell you what, this episode has been waiting, waiting a few years to, to have this conversation with my guest today because our paths first crossed back at the Mid-America PTTC, which I'm surprised I can still say smoothly without stumbling on my words. But we brought him to the Mid-America region to do a, a nice workshop for our prevention leaders. And I knew I wanted to, to chat with this fella more and more, and finally that day has come. So without further ado, Shad, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, David. Delight to join you. And we had a baby delivery that got in the way, an early one that got in the way from doing this. During this one, we had originally scheduled, but if there's ever a good time to reschedule, I think that's a, that's a good reason. Yes, indeed. It might have been a Sunday night when we we're in the hospital and I'm emailing, hey, tomorrow, can we reschedule? Sorry. Without going back, like talking a whole lot about how our paths first crossed, because I'm going to send a link to the the book that brought us together to begin with. But would you give us just like a, a little introduction as to who you are and kind of where you come from? Sure. My name is Steven Shedletsky. Friends call me Shed, so feel free to call me Shed. I identify as Shed. I hail from Toronto, Ontario, Canada, and... I mean, there are a few sort of very early in my life and early career experiences that I think have informed my passion. So one, I grew up with a stutter uh, and I still do have a speech impediment and work to overcome it. I married a speech therapist. Good choice, not just for me, but for my kids. Happened very much by accident, maybe. And so one, I know what it feels like to be voiceless. I know what it feels mm -hmm. like to have something to say, but to lack the confidence or the skills to know how to or be willing to speak up. So that's one. The other is, I mean, my very first day and my very first job in my, you know, quote, corporate career, a thousand people were laid off post-merger. And so I walked into an organization as many more people were walking out boxes in hand. And so I saw firsthand, I mean, I was very grateful that it was my first job and not, you know, something I had been down for decades like the person across from me in their cubicle, Bryn, she was 37 years at the company and she was petrified that her pink slip would arrive next. And so I saw sort of firsthand the impact of the behavior of leaders and of this thing called culture, not just on people's productivity and work products, but their health and well-being. And so that sort of guided and informed my passions, which is mm -hmm. around people showing up and feeling engaged at work people having good, healthy relationships with their colleagues, their peers, their bosses, their leaders, their, their organizations. And so that led me to cross paths with Simon Sinek. And it's because of Simon that we met and our works and, and paths collided. Spent, gosh, I've been working with Simon for close to 12 years now. I was on the team, fourth person to join the team, on the team for 10 years. I still do work with them sharing Simon's message and ideas with Start With Why and the Infinite Game of the Year Z Last. And 
through the journey of working for a prolific author and speaker, I was often asked on my journey, when are you going to write your book? And my response was always the same, was if and when I ever come across something worth writing, because I never wanted to write a book because I was a, quote, keynote speaker. That's the definition of a cruddy book. <laughs> and so through, you know, my, my passions of, you know, having a, having a stutter, feeling voiceless, seeing the differences in organizational cultures where people felt that it was safe and worth it to speak up, or people felt that it was better to zip it and remain silent. I came across this body of work that we're calling Speak Up Culture, uh, which informed this book that's uh, out October 3rd. Yes, indeed. And don't worry, folks, the show notes will be loaded up with links. I, I want to ask a few questions, not a whole lot, because I want to get into digging into culture and, of course, the Speak Up Culture book. Mm-hmm. But as you kind of reflect back on that little intro you shared what are some of the moments or where did you feel, you know, inspired? Ooh, inspired. It's a good question. So, so a few moments. I mean, one, I feel so fortunate that when I, through my education at the university level, there were a few professors that I absolutely loved and a few classes that just stand out where I would say that I experienced fulfillment. And for me, fulfillment is using our strengths of which every single human being has strengths. Fact. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when we use those strengths, the funny thing about strengths is oftentimes we're unaware of what they are because it's hard to read the label on the jar when we're inside the jar. So <laughs> we're, we're world class at things that we take for, for, for granted. Like as an example, I will draft emails and social media posts on a walk, in the car, in the shower. I'll be like, oh, that's a good one, right? Mm-hmm. Now, I think everyone must do that. Apparently, <laughs> apparently, that isn't the case for every single human being, which shocks me, but it's, it's a strength of mine, right? Mm-hmm. Communication, finding words to represent ideas and feelings. That's my jam. Mm-hmm. And you have your own version of that, as do every single one of our listeners has strengths, whether they're aware of it or not. And when we use those strengths to contribute towards something bigger than ourselves that we care about, that is fulfillment. Mm-hmm. And so there's a specific course with a specific professor where I experienced that. It was a presentation skills, like a public speaking class mm. with Dr. Dennis Shackle. And I loved it. And I loved him. And I'm so thankful that I experienced sort of a peak. I experienced like work can be this fun, this safe, this stretching and growing, this fulfilling, this engaging, this inspiring. And sort of having that peak experience early in my career made the dissonance that I felt early in my working career of like, what? Like, this is work? Like, no thanks. <laughs> and so the, the contrast of that really, really helped. And then, of course, I mean, working all those years with Simon and learning how he communicates, learning, you know, how serious he is about service and how important as human beings service to one another is for our health and well-being as individuals, as groups, as society. You know, there are definitely countless moments where I felt inspired by that. And then as I've started my own little company and own my own career journey, I mean, I was always so staunchly passionate inside of Simon's company that we must live what we preach, that we cannot teach or expect others to do as we say unless we we do as we say. And that was always my number one passion, sort of like, you know, in my little company, it's, it's family first, that if anyone on our, on our team has something to do with, with family, that is go do it, like, mm-hmm. gotcha. Mm-hmm. And for me, like, that's after family, <laughs> the next important thing in a business is actually behave in a way that is aligned with who we claim to be and claim that we are folks, I saw that family first in action when I sent that, hey, I'm in the hospital right now. We're having our baby five and a half weeks early. So yes, you are living that. Though my first instincts was like, do you have your gear with you? Like, can we, right. no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> right, right. Oh my gosh. Bringing my setup. So I have four monitors, a soundboard. Yeah. I don't think there's room Hard for pass. that in the hospital. Hard pass. A little bit too much background noise there, I'm sure. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yes. want to share actually some wisdom my dad has has given me over the years. And he's a retired sergeant major, through and through leader. And he said, you'll hear the phrase lead by example. And he's like, I don't want you to throw that out. Mm. Because 
it's easy to go to work, put on your uniform and check the boxes, do what you're supposed to do. Like if you want to be a, a true leader and, and lead with people power, you've got to live by example. So it's live by example to lead by example. And I just, yeah, just how you show up makes such a big difference. Nice. Such a nice. big difference. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, what I love about that is it, you know, it points to, so very close friend of mine, and I mentioned him before we started recording, Rich Devaney, who's a retired US Navy SEAL commander. His, this quote on leadership that he has, I think is the best I've heard, which is leaders aren't born, leaders aren't even made, leaders are chosen based upon the way that they behave. And, you know, sure, some of us are born with some of the innate attributes that, that, you know, we're higher on them and are easier for us to develop, like empathy, compassion, selflessness, authenticity, decisiveness, you know, responsibility, accountability. You know, those are attributes typically of leaders. And some of us are born with higher levels of those. But just because you have the innate abilities, if you don't hone them and work on them and develop them and use them with the intent to serve, just because you have them doesn't make you a leader. And I even love this extension that leaders aren't even made, meaning that just because you learn the qualities of leadership or even behave as a leader in an instance, it's the consistency, it's the leveling up, it's the ongoing, it's the growth. And so you earn your title or we call you leader because you behave in a way that is worth following. So just another way to say the exact same thing that your your father shared shared with you. Absolutely. And it warmed my heart sharing about your your professor that was an inspiration for you because it took me back to to Dr. Hawkins who Actually, I had several classes with him in grad school, but it was coaching and mentoring for critical thinking that really resonated with me. I'm curious now too, sort of the flip side of where you felt sort of inspired leading up to where you're at. Where'd you feel challenged? I know you mentioned you know, growing up with a stutter and your first professional ex work role, but yeah, where, where'd you feel challenged? The the first thing that comes to mind is, I mean, the reason why I wrote this book. So yes, I felt challenged feeling voiceless and overcoming a stutter. Yes, I felt challenged starting my career and it being like a wake up call. You know, I I felt like you know when we go to school, it's like a step ladder. It's like follow these steps, get to the next level. It's like a freaking video game, you know. And then you you graduate from school and you enter into the workforce, and you're no longer in this very linear step ladder you're like in a Seinfeld parking garage and you're like P7, I was just on P12 a second ago. Like what's going on here, right? It's, it's total chaos. And we don't, we don't yet prepare young people, people for the uncertainty and the ambiguity of an adult life, you know? So that's one piece that just com comes to mind. I mean, the, the reason I wrote this book is reflecting upon experiences in my career, whether it had been teams I'd been a part of, companies I'd been a part of, clients that I had, vendors, personal relationships, you know, professional relationships. And I contrasted the ones where there was a speak-up culture, and I contrasted the ones where there wasn't a speak-up culture. And I had some really challenging experiences in my career where there wasn't a speak-up culture, where I thought I was doing the right thing in speaking up. And unfortunately, I, unbeknownst to me, they weren't safe spaces where it was safe and worth it to speak up. And I became the problem. And it was the hardest thing, you know, doing what I thought was the right ethical good thing. This is the way we behave as, as leaders here and in general, and it being greeted and met with, you know, I regret to inform you that you are the problem and no problem exists here. It's like, what? Um, and so, and then contrast that with experiences that I had in my career where there was a speak of culture. Was it perfect? Absolutely not. But did we have environments in which we could take interpersonal risk, where we could share our hard truth and not get punished for it, but actually get rewarded for the courage and the vulnerability and the positive intent? And I, I just, I want more of those cultures where when we show up in a way that we feel is the best way with an intent to improve, do good, and serve. You know, I just had this experience this week with with a member of my team where, you know, he showed up in a, in a way that had a negative impact that was unintended. And we took the time and I shared my experience of it. Not that I was right, it was my experience. 
he owned up to it. We're working on it and we're cascading up and improving, right? The only way it sort of is through is to dip down before you can transcend and go up. So I want more of those cultures where we can actually use conflict and tension and things going wrong because they do because we're human as opportunities to grow, grow closer together and, and get better. Absolutely. And when, when you, I know our listeners can't see, but when you did the dip down motion to, to then go up, all I could think about is that's where the roots are. You've got to get to the root of it to be able yeah. to then go up. And it's, it's the difference, Dave, between a, a healthy, thriving, speak up relationship and a toxic relationship. So a toxic relationship, whether that's with another human being or a substance, is the more you invest in it, the worse it gets. And the only person who's, who's made wrong is you. Whereas a healthy relationship is the more you invest in it, the better it gets. And, and all parties take responsibility for the health and well-being of that relationship. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And prevention leaders listening, let's talk about culture. Now, in prevention, we, we talk about cultural competence, cultural humility, and that being at the, the heart or the core of what we do in prevention. But... I like to challenge and push back a little bit in that our minds tend to just go, when we hear the word culture, race, ethnicity, mm. gender identity. Let's, let's talk big picture. What is culture? How, how do you articulate or define just culture? Sure. So, I mean, a culture is what are the accepted and rewarded norms and behaviors, values in action here? In the book, I've devised a bit of an equation for, for culture, which is culture equals in brackets values multiplied by behavior. And all of that is raised to the power of influence. So the strength of a culture is determined by the clarity of its values multiplied by the degree that those values are. So first and foremost, values ought to be clear and they're even stronger when they're defined with behaviors. So I, I always find it funny when organizations have values that are nouns or adjectives. You know, here are values, excellence, respect, integrity, communication. It's like, bravo. Those are the four values of, of Enron, right? Which is the, the famous accounting scandal and unethical leadership by Ken Lay. But if you go like, and, and like, hey, Dave, do me a favor. The rest of the afternoon, more excellence, please. And you're like, that sounds like, pretty meaningless. But if we go and go, well, like, what does that mean on a behavior level? What's a verb or an action phrase? I could say, do more of your best work. Now we're talking, which means you're focusing on your strengths and amplifying them. You're building awareness of your weaknesses or limitations and finding stop gaps or delegation or vulnerability or training um, around those limitations or weaknesses. That's bringing to life excellence, you know, do more of your best work. So, for a culture to be strong, values ought to be identified. And then the strength of it is the degree to which each individual lives those values and, and that we reward and recognize, provide coaching, feedback, discipline if necessary, if people behave outside of it. And then all that is raised to the power of influence because the more influence one has in a culture, the more weight that bears on the culture that you have. Means more if a CEO or senior leader lives the espoused values, especially when the going gets tough. And it means more if they don't. Then, for example, a junior person that was hired last week, unless they were handpicked by a senior person, at which point their individual behavior and, and values represent the person who picked them as well. So that's how I think about culture. And, you know, the power of culture, the analogy I use is pickle brine. So we could take, Dave, the best award-winning world-class cucumber, put that thing in some awful pickle brine, and we have an awful pickle that should never have been made and was a waste of that cucumber. Now, is it the fault of the cucumber? No. Just like if you plant a perfect seed in bad soil, it's the soil. There wasn't enough water or nutrients or the right temperature or whatever. And so I think so often we blame performance issues, whether in the context of an organization or that of those that were serving patients, whatever it might be, we blame the seed or the cucumber or the human being without examining the pickle brine, without examining the environment that we're in. That's culture and bureaucracy, systemic issues, 
you know, the environment, the systems, the, the, the culture is that pickle brine and can make or break people, regardless of how amazing those individuals are. I love it. I love it. And that actually one of the, the workshops that I do is titled culture is the strategy mm-hmm. when it comes to prevention, that, that's the strategy. We, we get so focused on, on our programs, our mm-hmm. campaigns and our tactics but essentially we need to really be looking at that big picture strategy and it's the culture, the norms, the actions, like you said. Yeah. Well, and this is the trouble that we can get into. Like it's the reason why lean management doesn't work and Kaizen and continuous improvement does. It's a branding issue. So if we're running a marathon and all I'm focused on is get to the finish line, get to the finish line, get to the finish line, and I'm not examining how I'm getting there, I may not be getting there in the in the healthiest way. And, you know, life and career are a series of games where there is is no finish line. I mean, this is Simon's work with the infinite game where, you know, you can see the finish line, that's vision, but you may never reach there. Like there's no winning the game of life or winning relationships or winning career. There are wins along the way. But I think it behooves us to just reach the goal. How are we reaching the goal? Are we reaching it in a healthy, ethical way? Or are we reaching it in a way that is actually destructive to us as individuals and as as a community or group? Absolutely. And so already in that definition, you shared sort of some of the, the elements or themes of good culture. What about the the backside of that that we'll just go with not so good culture? In terms of not not healthy culture? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, so let's look at all the all the levers. So if you don't have clearly defined values, good luck to you. Like that's more likely to be chaos. If you don't behave the values that you that you espouse, luck with you to there. Like if your value, if if your value number is low, well then there's only a limit on how strong your culture can, can be. You know, it's like Mel Brooks saying, here are, you know, 15, sorry, 10 commandments. Like it behooves us to have guiding principles of like, this is how we behave. Now we should select leaders against those principles or those values, not just per, just performance. We should reward and recognize people when they live those values, whatever those values are. You know, seldom is the example when I've come across a leader or organization who has a destructive value. 99.9% of organizational values are good. It's just the degree to which are they clear? Do we, know, do we know what they look like when they're behaved? And then do we actually use them? And then, you know, sort of two culture killers, I would say, is if you reward, recognize, and promote people who are high on performance but low on trust. You know, those are the people who are, are drivers or they're peacocks. You know, they might kiss up to the right people at the right times, but they're a nightmare to work with and they are morale killers, which is why, you know, as a leader... The more senior you get in an organization, a couple things happen. One, the further away you get from the truth and the customer, the end user, typically, because we're hardwired to offer our leaders deference because we're a hierarchical species. So literally, we can talk smack about a leader. They walk into the room. Hello, ma'am. Hello, sir. So nice to see you. Three seconds ago, you were talking smack about them. Oh, well, they're in the room now, right? So that's normal. So I think as leaders, we must work extra hard to truly understand how are people performing and how do people view them? Not just me, because they might kiss up to me. How do their peers experience them? It's the value of a 360 review because you could have high rankings from a leader, but their peers and their subordinates rank low. That's telling. They might be a high performer of low trust. And then the other phenomena as a, as a leader is your whisper is a shout and your, and your tiptoes are stomps. That, that influence piece that if you have leaders who either have individual values that sway from the values of the organization, or they behave in ways that there's a gap between what is said and what is done, that is dangerous. So a few few dynamics there. And I love, I mean, I love your focus on action. And it, it, it makes such a big difference to even just talk about it. And I'm, drawn back to a workshop one of my good friends and colleagues Angie did with me in Kentucky a, a regional prevention center their their culture had decayed through a lot of different circumstances and so we went in we actually did a 
workshop with them and help them talk through their current culture. We did a strategic juncture. Why is now the time to, to do something, to take action? And then we help them with visioning. And through a couple of consensus workshops, they talked about what they wanted their culture to be and what that would look like on a random Tuesday, what actions, what behaviors aligned with that. So then they created their own culture. Oh, it was beautiful. Beautiful. Nice. It was fun. And what's so good about that is you now have something objective. So if and when, I mean, A, when people live the espoused culture, that's a perfect time to reward and recognize in ways that are meaningful to them, right? Not everyone likes to be recognized the same way. That's, you know, platinum rule stuff rather than golden rule. Treat others as they wish to be treated. And then the other is if for any reason there's a discrepancy that we show up and behave in ways that are counter to the sort of the, not even the baseline, but the, the standard, it gives us something objective where we're not pointing at the person, we're pointing at the, at the values and the behaviors and the guidelines saying, I'm experiencing something that is different than this. I think there's opportunity for us to, to course correct and clean that up and to have, have, an, have an effective intervention. Mm -hmm. And they printed them out. They made it nice and pretty and it's up on their different office walls. And since they're a regional team, they're spread out. And we talked about that, the fact that they are now empowered to basically hold each other accountable, give each other nudges and say, hey, FYI, remember that? It was fun. And we've also been doing coaching with them as well. And I know you, you offer coaching as well, correct? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, in terms of the work that we do, we do some one-on-one -on -one coaching with leaders, some group and team coaching really around how to create the most effective, high trusting and high performing culture that is sustainably performing, not just peak performing, but then yeah, workshops on leadership culture and keynotes as well. I dig it. And before we really unpack what is speak up culture. I've got one last question, just as it relates to to culture as as a whole. What uh, are the impacts of not intentionally or being purposeful about fostering, changing, or creating a healthy culture? I mean, if you don't focus on it, you're leaving it up to chance. And if you leave it up to chance, the likelihood that it will be as healthy, thriving, optimal as possible you know, good luck. So when you make it a focus, you know, what you focus on gets gets done or progress is made. I mean, there is no done or ending point with culture. To your point, there's no Tuesday morning where we wake up and we're like, all right, culture, we, we finished that work. Like, no, it's, you keep going always because the world around us, the environment around us, people change, dynamics change. So it, you know, you constantly have to work on it, be aware of it as it morphs and changes with you. But yeah, if you don't focus on it, you leave it up to chance. If you don't make it a priority, it isn't a priority. And then you, it's a slippery slope where the focus can be on the programs and on the results at the risk of damaging culture or it not being as healthy as possible. And, and culture is kind of like the lubricant that we put in our engines. It just helps it make, helps it run as efficiently and as effective as possible. I like that, the lubricant and... Listeners, if your mind is going for workforce development or not, um, but I know that's a big, big conversation in the behavioral health field as a whole. And we often focus on recruitment, getting people in the front door. And I, as the director at the PUTTC, I was like, y'all, we need to close the back door. And what's going to close the back door is the culture. Let's, let's work on that. But I didn't get very far. Yeah. Ah. <laughs> oh. I tried, I tried. But, but it, it, or it could be a, a mismatch values and what you view and know is important and what others know and view is important, you know? And it doesn't make people wrong. It just means that there's another place where your efforts can thrive more and can add more value. Yes, indeed. Speaking of adding value and, and shaping culture, influence culture, fostering culture, let's talk about speak up culture. Let's do it. Hit me with it. What, is, what does speak up culture mean? So speak up culture means an environment in which people feel it is both psychologically safe and worth it to speak up, to share ideas, even if they're half-baked, to share feedback, to make one another or our work better, to even share concerns, even if they are unpopular or personal, to disagree or offering a dissenting point of view, especially to someone more senior to you. How does that go? and admit mistake knowing or believing it will lead to improvement 
not uh, being repeatedly ignored or being punished. When I first started looking at and writing the book, I simply thought I was rebranding psychological safety. You know, that people don't buy drills, they buy holes. That's a Zig Ziglar quote. And I'm like, okay, well, if psychological safety is the drill, the hole, what you get is a speak-up culture. But as we dug into the phenomenon more, it's more than just psychological safety. There's also something called perception of impact. So before we decide to speak up, we consciously or unconsciously ask two questions. Is it safe and is it worth it? So if our response to both is yes, then we're likely to speak up and we're more likely to have a healthy speak up culture. Now, both is it safe and is it worth it are a perception. You and I could work for the same leader in the same organization. I could say, oh my God, aren't they amazing? Greatest leader, I feel so comfortable speaking up. And you're like, do we work at the same place and for the same leader? And we're both right, because it's a perception, right? Um, now, if we don't have safety and we don't have a perception of, of impact, that's an unhappy marriage of fear and apathy. I've been there. It's no fun. I've seen others there. That's where we get quiet quitting or resignation, right? Now, the other two quadrants are really interesting. You can have high safety, but low impact. So you might feel psychologically safe to speak up, but either due to systemic issues or bureaucracy or a change in habit that is simply too hard, you just don't feel that it's fertile soil. You'll speak up, but it falls on deaf ears or it goes nowhere because of red tape or whatever blockage there there is. And you might speak up, but how many times do you go back to that same dry well? And then the other one that really is fascinating for me is low safety, but high impact. So it, it isn't psychologically safe, but you feel that the stakes are too high to remain silent. This is what we saw with Ed Pearson, who's a retired naval officer who worked at Boeing on the factory line creating the 737 Max which he saw this was not a safe plane. He spoke up to the general manager of the Renton Washington facility. He spoke up to senior leaders. He spoke up to the FAA, to NTSB. He ends up whistleblowing to US Congress because that was not a safe plane. He ends up retiring early. He took personal risk and courageous leadership risk to his relationships, his job, his reputation, because he was confronted with something that was simply so important. So for me, this is, you know, when I say speak up culture, we go, oh, yeah, just psychological safety. Actually, it's more than psychological safety. It's also a perception of, is it worth it? Will something positive happen because of my choice and the courageous risk to speak up? Because speaking up is never without fear. It's never fearless. It's always creating less fear and that it feels safe and worth it to share a voice. And... It's almost like you read my notes because I wanted to, to ask for an example on, you know, speaking up. Um, yeah, I can give more. <laughs> I figured, I mean, where my mind went was uh, my wife who's a pediatric ICU nurse and you betcha that you need to be able to speak up in, in that kind of environment. But at the same time, you got me thinking like, well, it's high impact, but is it safe? Do, do, the, do the team members, the, the staff, do they feel safe speaking up? They just know that it's high impact. Yeah. Well, this is this is where you sometimes can get unethical behavior, unfortunately, but it's not necessarily the fault of the individuals. It's, you know, if you punish people for speaking up or you punish people for making human error and you don't learn from it. So, I mean, this is where psychological safety was really first unearthed when Amy Edmondson was studying hospital units. And she was looking at the difference of when there is psychological safety and, you know, a high trust environment where we can take interpersonal risk and others where there is not. And one of the results confounded her, which was the number of medical errors reported. The number of medical errors reported were higher in the environments where there was psychological safety. And she's like, how could that be? She looked at more independent data because the key, the key word is reported. It wasn't more medical errors in totality. It was just more medical errors reported, which meant when we're in psychologically safe environments, we're willing to raise our hand and say, I messed that up. We need to improve it for the, for better patient outcomes in the future. Whereas where there isn't psychological safety, we spend disproportionate amount of time and energy hiding mistakes from each other for fear of being punished and fear of being made wrong or being fired or wherever it might be. And so. I mean, obviously, this stuff of culture 
matters a ton when you have life and death stakes, whether it, when it's military, where it's law enforcement, where it's healthcare, where literally, you know, when you're making planes or cars or submersible submarines or whatever, sorry too soon, but that was a culture issue as well. But it's, I mean, this, the, the submersible, the Titan submersible, uh, a technician two years before the accident, I believe it was two years said, this isn't safe. And they were fired. So now when the stakes are life and death and it's very visible and easy to see high stakes for me though, we know from the national Institute of health that our relation and from UKG that our relationship with our direct boss has more of an impact on our health than that of our relationship with our family doctor or therapist. If we have one and it's at par on the impact of our health with that of our spouse. And we've lived this when we have a great boss, it feels great. And by great, I don't mean that they let us coast. They give us feedback. They help us grow. They make us feel safe. They make us feel that we're worthy, valuable contributors to the team and the organization, that we matter. And it's good for our health. When we have what I'll call leader SHI, our relationship with our boss literally has a life depleting impact on us. And so whether or not we're in lines of work that have life or death impact, if you are in a role of leadership, you have either life-feeding or life-depleting impact on the people in your span of care. What is more important than that? So leadership in and of itself is a high-stakes job, just as parenting is. Absolutely. And where we're at now, and the, the increased sense on wellness and mental health, I, I can absolutely see and feel the impacts of you know, your direct supervisor and how that can impact your overall well-being and health. Absolutely. Let's let's shift and talk a little bit about the how. How can can leaders or even peers create or nurture a speak up culture? Yes. So it is what I found is it's a virtuous cycle between encourage and reward, and it ripples. So the the two actions that leaders must do to create a speak up culture are encourage people to speak up and then reward them when they do. So a great example of this, there's a, a very senior pilot and a safety specialist. His name is Ben Berman. He's flown hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of flights. And every time he goes to his crew before they take off and they sort of have their huddle, he says, I've never flown a perfect flight and today's no exception. I need, I need to know what you see, feel, and know, right? Like this is the most senior pilot that many other pilots and flight crew, crew will ever come across in their career. And that's the precedence that he sets. He creates an environment where he encourages people to speak up. So if someone sees that something is wrong or could be better, they speak up. Now, when people do decide to speak up, is it rewarded, right? Especially when people bring forth bad news or feedback that's hard to hear or a disagreement or something that sets us back, right? Do we punish that person or do we say thank you and dig in and learn more, use it? And the sort of marvelous thing about it is it it ripples. So encourage and reward impacts others. So let's say I report to you and I go and I speak up and it goes well. What do I do? I share it with my peers. Dave's a good dude, you know, share your hard stuff with him, you know. Now if I if I come to you and it doesn't go well, I go, hey, either it's a bad day or just don't do it, right? So that that encourage and reward also ripples. Mm -hmm. Encourage and reward. I like it. And in some of the other workshops I've done, we talk about the importance of that second or third person, like how you respond in we'll call those moments of vulnerability and how important it is in, in the response and creating that, that safety. Yeah. Now I, I'm curious and we may scratch this part too. I, I might be stretching. I'm curious when it comes to the the encourage and reward encouraging folks to to speak up i feel like i'm guilty of it my mind goes to the big grandstand whoa stop and it's a a big to do but i also feel like there's a lot of opportunity or the the smaller speak up moments how how can we as leaders open the door create space for those too, just the, not the, 
oh my gosh, we're all going to die. The plane's going to crash moments. Just the, yeah. the I'm not going to call them insignificant or smaller moments, but the, the not bold moments. Yeah. Well, but I think what you're speaking to is how can you make both encourage and reward cultural habits or rituals? So it doesn't need to be these sort of big, grandiose moments, though those can matter and can count. I've got a fun story on how that one didn't go well. Just in short, so this is a perfect example of of not rewarding. I did work for, I did a keynote for an organization, I think it employs about 20,000 people. It's a national level organization that essentially keeps the entire country safe. Just leave it there. They do very important work as it relates to our health, safety, and well-being. And the executive that spoke just before me was the executive sponsor of the event. I had a pre-engagement call with them. It went well. We read the same books. We listened to the same podcasts. I liked the guy. And there are many, you know, I, I, I ended that call being like, he's a good earnest leader, right? And there are many pre-engagement calls where I end those calls and don't feel that way about the people that I speak with. So as often as I can, I show up early to these events because the comments that I hear ahead of mine are worth their weight, not just in gold, but in platinum. They make me far more effective as a speaker and facilitator. And so I showed up early and I had a chance to hear the end of his prepared comments and then they opened up to a Q&A. The second question that was asked, and this was a, an all hands for any people manager, 1,500 people in the organization. The second question asked, and it was asked anonymous, anonymously, uh, and it said, what is being done to address the continued issue of, of manager burnout? To which, you know, fair question, to which the executive sponsor said, well, we've done these initiatives. As far as I'm concerned, it's no longer an issue. Next question. And I went, oh, no. Like, I don't think it was his intention to negate, shut off, and potentially gaslight people on such a grand stage, but it sucked. I mean, the mere fact that the question had to be asked again, a better response would be, huh, if I'm truly honest, I'm surprised to hear this question because of these initiatives and we've seen these results and I'm pleased with them. However, the fact that this question had to be asked again means that at least one person is still struggling. And if I'm honest, if one person is struggling, many more are. And so we need to dig into this further. I wanna learn more. I want to see what's working, what's not working. My hope is by the next time we have our next all hands, this isn't an issue. And I'm committed to work with you to find out how we can close that. And then do something about it, right? And if you're burned out by the burned out question, you know you really have an issue. So that was an example on a very grandiose stage. But when it comes to encourage and reward, there are a few things. Encourage. Leaders go first and share vulnerably how they're doing, their mistakes, speak up them themselves, setting that condition as Ben Berman did to say, I need to know what you see, feel, and, and hear because you make the collective better. You can design meetings in a way that will have people more likely to speak up. You can you know, create space and call on people who don't often speak up, but you know they have things going on, you know, that you know that they're thinking. If you're in person, you can design a meeting and sit in a circle because a circle denotes equality. You can see everyone face to face, though there might still be hierarchical dynamics in that circle. There's no apex to a circle. If the more senior you are, speak last if you can. Ask questions, you know. It's so bad when leaders hop into a room and say, all right, we need everyone's genius and ideas. Here's the issue. Here's what I think. It's like, like, here's the issue pause. Does anyone else see this issue differently? What do we think? And then zip it and you will gain from the genius of others' ideas and actually become smarter before setting the group into groupthink. So there are all these sorts of things that we can do to encourage. We can do anonymous surveys and, and polls. Better to have anonymous feedback than no feedback whatsoever. And then reward is, is that you reward the behavior even if the message is hard to hear. Now, a speak-up culture doesn't mean that you can bust into the boss's office and scream at them. No, that might be inappropriate. And sucking up is not the same as, as speaking up. It's still a quality of voice, and it still needs to be appropriate and respectful and diplomatic. But, you know, speak up. When people do step into that speak-up ring and the pressure's on, are they rewarded? And reward doesn't necessarily mean an extrinsic reward, like a bonus, a pay raise, a promotion, or a statue made in your honor out in front of the the you know organizational headquarters reward means thank you 
that's really helpful to hear. Let's dig in further. I don't completely see what you see. Can you share more or how you got to that conclusion? We didn't implement your idea, but here's why from this reason or strategic reason, but great stuff. Keep it coming. You know, these are all versions of rewards. Yeah. More intrinsic than extrinsic. Gratitude, appreciation, acknowledgements. And, and impact. You know, we, we took your feedback. Here's what we did with it. Please give us your feedback again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Earn it. Absolutely. And we've already talked many, many benefits of speak up culture. What's so in addition to ordering the book, what mm-hmm. is another good first step for leaders when it comes to fostering speak up culture? So, I mean, I think the, the biggest thing is there's an equation we put in the book, which is your truth plus my truth equals higher truth. So, so I think we can, and I had a very real experience of this. So I took part in a, in an offsite with a team that I was part of. We had this meeting that felt like a very healthy, positive, productive meeting. It was this, it was as if, you know, we were a, a remote team. So we came in together. We had this conversation. It felt healthy. It kind of felt like if you've ever cooked with a pressure cooker and the pressure hits a certain point and then you like either push the button or just like, the pressure releases on its own. It was a pressure releasing, tension releasing meeting for me. I debriefed that meeting after afterwards with a colleague of mine who was at my same level. And I sort of in a very, you know, non-empathetic way just proclaimed, wow, what a great meeting. And I could see from their body language and sort of facial response that they didn't have the same experience as me. And so when it was appropriate and we were, you know, in, in private, I said, hey, like, are you willing to share your perspective on it? And they said it was the worst meeting of their career. They felt sick, sick to their stomach and wanted to vomit. And I'm like, oh my God, I thought it was like one of the best meetings in my career. Someone else thought it was the worst meeting of their career. And the truth is somewhere in the middle. Now, what if you're a facilitator of that meeting and you walk out of that meeting your perspective isn't the right perspective. You could like everyone's perspective is the right perspective. So I think for leaders to walk around and believe that their perspective is right is foolish. It's why I'm most attracted to work with humble leaders, you know, leaders who have the humility to look in the mirror, leaders who have the humility to invite others to help them look in the mirror. There's a great article in the Atlantic that came out a few years ago that's called Power Causes Brain Damage. And they literally did scans of the brain when you have more power and it makes us less empathetic, quicker to judge. And the very behaviors that we earn to gain our status, we lose when we have the status, which means if and when we are in positions of power, we must create the condition where we're getting feedback. Again, we're biologically wired to give the person in power deference, which means we will make, we will make them think that they're great and more right. Why? So that we're safer, so that we're not on the chopping block, so that we're still viewed nicely in their eyes. But great leaders work really hard to gain from the unfiltered truth and to reward people for sharing their truth, knowing that the ultimate truth is that it is, it is their perception. It is everyone's perception. So so yeah, if you really want to build a speak-up culture, of course, read the book. You know, great. Live the message from the book. And I think that one of the biggest ones is to have the humility to know that you're not right, you're not perfect, and there's always more to the story. There's always more to the story. Cue the, cue the X-Files music. Doodly, doodly, yeah. Right, right. Well, I get <laughs> Cut it out, cut it out. Um, oh, now we're getting in trouble with Full House. <laughs> Uncle Jesse's all up in this piece, yes. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, how a Full House. Um, one of uh, one of my other colleagues and friends, Nicole Augustine's her name, brilliant. And that culture, it's always changing. It always is. If you think about all the technological advances that we've seen in my age bracket to the youth today, culture's changing so fast, so fast, and it's always changing. And so we need to be intentional about it, understanding it, and how do we want to foster it? Yeah. I mean, it's why we call them generations because we can make generalities or, you know, general assumptions 
based upon the culture and environment that they grew up in. You know, it's no mistake that this generation of youth need some help on delaying gratification and having patience and persistence because it's the swipe right nation, you know, want to date, swipe right, you know, and boom, match, like, you know, and the courage to like go up to someone at a in a public space and be like, hey, I'm Steven, like, what are you drinking? You know, or you want to go for a walk or whatever it might be like that takes courage. Um, so yeah, you know, it behooves us to look at, at the, the generalities of the way that certain people grew up at certain times and to, yeah, treat them differently in ways that engage them and help them grow in the way that they, they can grow as well. I've got two more questions for you that I can think of, and there might be more that pop in my mind. You just never know with me. I like to ask questions, hence why I started a podcast. I'm eager to get my copy of the book uh, October 3rd, I believe. If I, Third, yeah. yes. Yeah. yeah. So I, I'm eager to, to get it and really dive in, but who else should read this book? I mean, we wrote this book for leaders, both capital L and lowercase l. So, you know, it's for, it's for a senior leader who knows that the greatest way to drive success, however you measure that, um, is through putting your people and your purpose first. Um, you know, we've written this book to be transitive, meaning it can fit in anywhere. So I would like to think that a leader who doesn't necessarily have that mindset might at least get to chapter three. Um, when they go to chapter four, they may not like what they read, but they'll at least start. Um, but it's definitely for senior leaders who already know that the greatest way to succeed in the long run and over um, a long sustainable run is by putting people in purpose first, and then profits or results tend to follow. It's also for leaders in the middle, managers. You know, I think we often um, crap on managers that you know management bad, leadership good, and it's like no, 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 no. Behaving as a boss behaving as a leader good. Now, um, both you and I have probably had the word manager in our title at some point in our career. I'm sure everyone listening here has either had that man that role, has it now, or knows someone who, who has it. The vast majority of people at some point in time are a manager, and they're the only people inside of organizations that have multi-directional influence. They can influence up, they influence side to side to peers, and they influence down. And so, um, change lives or lives and dies in the middle. And so we need managers. We need more managers, of course, to behave as leaders, not as bosses. But we also need people to just like manage stuff. That's important in the machination and the in the operation of an organization. Hopefully they do so with humanity. Um, but it's also written for people in the middle, as I've spent most of my career in the middle um, in, in organizations who may have had a leader or two who have been great in their in their career, but have also seen um, uh, the, the counter, you know, uh, people who are in charge who behave as such, they're in charge. And these leaders in the middle wish to behave and lead in a different way. Um, and then it's for people who are lowercase leader, meaning they may not have the title or formal influence, but they wish to behave as a leader. They wish to study and learn what it means to be a great leader and then behave as such. And even if they don't have the title, if they behave as a leader and people follow them, guess what? They're a leader. Um, so that's who we wrote this for. I love it. And I'm going to add to that list as to who this book is for. And it's Please for do. you listeners, prevention leaders. Mm. Part of why this podcast is titled Prevention Leaders, because in prevention, we are all leaders. How we show up what we do to create positive change in our communities. We're, we're leading that change. You could be a director, a, a coalition coordinator, a coalition member. You're a leader. And I say this book is for you. And I want to throw another just thought out there for the audience and curious what your thoughts are there too before we close out is that I often talk about onboarding and prevention. And when we bring on, there's turnover is a challenge at all the different levels. But when you're onboarding a new team member, what better time to talk about your culture openly, honestly, transparently, and vulnerably, and having a, a structured onboarding. In, in fact, the, 
one group that we did that workshop with, they now have an actual conversation about their, their culture that they've crafted. Why not have a book or two included in your new employee onboarding? I could see this fitting there. Thoughts on that? Hmm. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, you know, the, you know, um, recruiting, onboarding, selection, promoting. I mean, these are great opportunities to look at not just what are the skills of make, of make, of someone who thrives in this particular role or organization, but what are the attributes? What are the human characteristics? And talking about our culture and our values and the behaviors that we live to to life, hugely important. And then, you know, so interesting to see what is either the alignment or the dissonance that people experience. I mean, this is who we say we are and this is who we actually are uh, because a strong culture is one in which that gap is very narrow. And anytime there is an experience of a gap, it's dealt with in a productive, appropriate, responsible, professional way and without attacking people. But again, pointing back to that doctrine of here's who we claim to be, let's let's close that gap. Um, and I think, again, you know, for prevention leaders, whether you hold a formal role or title of leadership that you are out in the community or behavior um, uh, matters. And again, um, when you are in a position of leadership or you behave as a leader, your whisper is a shout and your tiptoes are stomps. People are looking, people are watching, people are following your lead. They're following your behavior. Um, and are you behaving in a way that is worth emulating? Doesn't mean you're going to nail it 10 times out of 10 every time. No. Um, but when we do uh, have a gaff, do we own up to it and work to close that gap? Do we for feedback? And are we mindful of, am I behaving in a way that I would want others to behave as well? I want, I'm pretty sure I saw it on your website in that leadership is a behavior, not a title. Yeah. That might just Bingo. be part of the title of this episode. Um, yeah. So I'm going to put plenty of links in the show notes, so I don't need to ask you how folks can get connected. I've got all your social media and the website, of course. But when folks pre-order the book, if I mm -hmm. remember correctly, I've got that dad brain going on, but we get early access to tools and resources as well. Is that correct? Yeah. So if you go to the website, speakupculture.com or you follow on social, um, but if you sign up for our newsletter, we will share sample chapters. We will share some tools, early access to products like a book club product. So absolutely, we're actively working as hard as we can behind the scenes to make all those promises a reality. Um, but yeah, hop on over to speakupculture.com, sign up for the newsletter, and we'll give you announcements like in-person and online events uh, for launch and then tools and, and ways to connect them with community for other leaders around the country and world who care as well about fostering cultures where people feel it's safe and worth it to speak up. All right, y'all yeah, check the show notes for those links. I will put it in there and love getting connected to that community because together is better and prevention is better together so much so that my shirt says that. There it is. <laughs> love it. All right. So last question, last question. For our listeners, if you were to tell them, if you're going to remember one thing from this episode, remember this. I would say that as human beings, we are imperfect and we need each other. I think this is probably the way I ended our workshop, however many years ago it was. But the two most powerful human forces that I know are um, hope and each other. Hope is the belief that tomorrow can be better than it is today. Hope is the belief that even if we're in a dark tunnel, there's light somewhere and that we can always journey with others to help find that light. And, you know, if we have each other, we kind of have everything that we need. As individuals, you know, we're limited. But together, as you point out, and as the t-shirt says, we are better. Together, we can accomplish more. Together, we can hold each other accountable. Together, we can form diverse teams with diverse sets of strengths and viewpoints. So if you lose hope, phone a friend or help a friend or help a stranger. Um, and journey together because it's always better. Beautiful. And with that, it has been an honor, as always, an honor to, to connect and be in the same space with you. Thank you for, for rescheduling due to uh, baby Eleanor's birth and also taking time to chat with me as well and look forward to many future conversations. Thank you, Dave. Thank you for the work that you do. Pleasure to join you and hope it helps and serves your, your audience. That concludes this episode. 
Thanks for tuning in. Be sure to hit the subscribe button and share this episode with a friend before you leave. And we look forward to seeing you on social media because prevention is better together. Together, we are stronger.